The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Thorndike is the original fictional forensic detective from the early 1900s, using science to aid the art of detection to bring criminals to justice. This time, presenting Elimination of Mr. Pratt, written by R. Austin Freeman, adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Cold morning, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anything worth reading in the paper this morning, Thorndike? <sighs> bloodhounds again. Next thing we'll be hearing is that they've brought back trial by fire. What's wrong with bloodhounds? I'll get that. Uh, bloodhounds aren't a foolproof method for identification. When will the police learn that, Jervis? Uh, yes, may I help you? Dr. John Thorndike. Indeed. Please come in, Inspector... Fox. Inspector Fox of the Baseford Police. Morning, Inspector. I'm Christopher Jervis, M.D. Thorndike's a business associate. Have a seat by the fireplace and warm up. I assume you've seen the write-up in the morning paper. Uh, indeed, I have, Inspector. Then you know that we have the arrest of one of our own men. It's rather awkward, you see. Uh, quite so. Quite bad for the force and for the public. There's no way out that we could see. Still, we would like for the accused to have every chance, and so the Chief Constable would like your opinion on the case, and perhaps he might be willing to act for the defense. Well, let's have the particulars, and just tell us all that you know, Inspector. To begin, the murdered man is Hiram Pratt, a retired prison warden and employed as a steward by General O'Gorman, himself a retired prison governor. Pratt, the deceased, came down from London yesterday by train. When and where did the train arrive? A base for its station at 6.30 in the evening. I'm sorry, you're asking because... I'd ask the same, Inspector. Do you object? Highly unusual, but since you've requested, I'll leave the questions to you. Where was the deceased last seen, and by whom? Pratt was seen by a guard at the train station, the ticket collector and the outside porter, who saw him leave the station at 6.37. Do you know where he was headed? Back to his place of employment, General O'Gorman's house. It's about half a mile from the train station. And then? At five minutes to seven. That's about 18 minutes. The general and his housekeeper, and another gentleman, found Pratt laying dead in the avenue, leading back to his house. Nearly home now. If Pratt is back from London, see if he can find some oil in the garden shed. Quiet. Do you hear someone? Hello? Who's out there? Mr. Pratt? No. Mrs. Bell? General O'Gorman, I thought I heard someone calling out just now. Mr. Hanford and I are back from town. Who's that? What the hell happened here? Hold that lantern steady, Mrs. Bell. Ooh, there's blood everywhere. Who is it, General? Don't touch that knife, Hanford. Not touching it. Let me see if he's, he's dead or it's something. It's Hiram Pratt. He's dead. Has to be. Stabbed to death a dozen times, I'm sure of it. That knife on the ground, covered in blood. It's the murder weapon. Looks like a Norwegian knife. Nasty blade. No, don't touch it, Mrs. Bell. What do we do? What do we do? Hanford, take your bicycle and ride for the police. I will go get the bloodhounds. When they have the scent from the blood on the knife, we will get the scoundrel. What the devil is going on here? This is a crime scene. I've got men searching up and down the avenue looking for the killer. He could be Pratt's anywhere. body was still warm when we found it. I heard someone calling out. Mr. Pratt must have been killed minutes before we found him. Standing here isn't finding the killer. I've gone on horseback through the meadows on either side of the road and found nothing. 
If we're going to catch this villain, we need to act. Oh, very well. See if your hounds can find anything. Hey, get those dogs off me. Have your men take them outside, General. I'm getting reports done, Inspector. Why is the General's hounds in here jumping over me? Hiram Pratt's dead, and the hounds led me straight to you, Ellis. Right in the open front door of the police station. Hold up, General. Let's get some facts. Where have you been tonight? Here. Since I got back from my rounds. You said Pratt's dead? What happened? Stabbed to death on my avenue, within sight of my house. I said hold up, O'Gorman. He's the one the hounds want. He's the one in bad terms with Pratt. He's the one who's been out alone tonight. I swear, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm, I see. Uh, was anyone else in the room? Two constables and a messenger. We led the hounds up to them, but they only wanted Ellis. Had to arrest him, you see. Couldn't do anything else. Especially with the general there. What has General O'Gorman to do with it? He's a justice of the peace and a late governor of Dartmoor Prison. You said Jack Ellis and Hiram Pratt had a falling out. Distinctly unfriendly terms. They were old comrades, you see. Ellis was a member of the Civil Guard at Portland Prison when Pratt was a warder there. Ellis got pensioned off early when he got his left forefinger chopped off. What caused the falling out between them, uh, do you know? A woman. A parlor maid of the General's. Jack Ellis is a married man, and it seems he paid the girl a little too much uh, attention. Or at least Pratt thought he did. Pratt warned Ellis off the premises. And they've not been on speaking terms since. Hmm. Now what sort of man is this Ellis? A remarkably decent fellow. Quiet, steady, good-natured. I should have said he wouldn't hurt a fly. We all liked him. Better than we liked Pratt, in fact. Why is that, Inspector? Oh, poor Pratt was what you would call an old soldier. Sly, you know, sir, a bit of a sneak. Yes. Nothing suspicious on his person, except he had two coin purses. But he says he picked up one of them on the footpath of the Thorpe Road yesterday afternoon. Small pigskin pouch. There's no reason to disbelieve him? None. At any rate, it didn't belong to Pratt either. I see. Now, now what about his clothing? No bloodstains or other marks? No marks or disarranged in any way. No cuts, scratches, or bruises on his person either. At what time did you arrest Ellis? Half past seven exactly. Had he been near the scene of the murder? Yes. He'd been to Thorpe and would pass the gates of the avenue on his way back. He was later than usual in returning, though not later than he'd often been before. Good, 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 good. Now, what about the murdered man? Has the body been examined? Yes, I had Dr. Hill's report before I came here. There were no less than seven deep knife wounds, all on the left side of the back. There was a great deal of blood on the ground, and Dr. Hills thinks Pratt must have bled to death in a minute or two. Do the wounds correspond with the knife that was found? I asked the doctor. He said yes, though he wasn't going to swear to any particular knife. Well, that's rightfully prudent and cautious of him. It wouldn't have mattered much since we have the knife. It was found close to the body and covered in blood. What's been done with the knife, by the way? Well, it's rolled in a handkerchief and locked in a dispatch box back at the police station. Ah, very good. Has the knife been recognized as Ellis's property? Uh, no, sir. Were there any recognizable footprints or marks of a struggle? I haven't examined the spots, sir, but after the general's horse and the bloodhounds and the general on foot and me and the gardener and the sergeants, Mr. Hanville... After we'd all been over it twice, you see, sir, that Yes, 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 I see. Well, Inspector, I shall be pleased to act for the defense. It seems to me that the case against Ellis is in some respects rather inconclusive.
It certainly hadn't struck me in that light, sir. No? Well, that is my view. I think the best plan will be for me to come down with you and investigate matters on the spot. Excellent, Dr. Thorndyke. You're coming along, Jervis? If I may be of any use. If not, I'll stay and enjoy the fire. (laughs) And a spontaneous luncheon with Miss Gibson, no doubt. Two heads are better than one, Jervis. I know you're just as interested in this as I am. We'll pack this research case, and we might as well have a camera with us. There's a train leaving Charing Cross in 20 minutes, or we can take the next one if you gentlemen need more time to pack your belongings. Oh, no need. We'll be ready in a tick. We should be reaching Baysford shortly. You've been flipping through that small notebook for the past half hour, Dr. Jervis. Oh, uh, notes from the conversation this morning. Dr. Thorndyke, you think there is a way out for Ellis? I think there is a case for defense. In fact, I call the evidence against him rather flimsy. But the knife, sir. My point exactly. What about the knife? Whose was it? You don't know. It was covered in blood. Whose blood? You don't know that either. Assume for a moment that it was the murderer's knife. Then the blood on it was Pratt's. But if it were Pratt's, the hounds should have led you directly to Pratt's body. But they didn't. They ignored the body, which infers the blood on the knife was not Pratt's. You're perfectly right, sir. I'd never thought of that. But now, assume the knife was Pratt's. He would have used it in self-defense. Except that Norwegian knives are clumsy and take two hands and an appreciable amount of time to open. Ah, would Pratt have had both hands free? Certainly not. Seven stab wounds on the left side of his back indicate that he held the murderer locked in his arms, and the murderer's arms were around him. A struggle. Uh, incidentally, the murderer is right-handed. How... If the knife was Pratt's, then the blood on it would belong to the murderer. And Ellis wasn't wounded. Jack Ellis isn't the murderer. Therefore, the knife is useless. <sighs> this is getting out of my depth. You can't get over the bloodhounds, sir. They tell us distinctly that the knife is Ellis's. The bloodhounds have told you nothing. You've drawn certain inferences from their actions, but those inferences may be totally wrong, and they are certainly not evidence. You don't seem to have much of an opinion of bloodhounds. As agents for the detection of a crime, I regard them as useless. You cannot put a bloodhound at the witness box. If it possesses any knowledge, it has no means of communicating it. The entire system of using bloodhounds for criminal detection is based on a fallacy. They have been used with great success in American plans. Yes, 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 for establishing the whereabouts of a known individual. The detective is not concerned with the whereabouts of a known individual, but of the unknown. If the criminal is unknown, the bloodhound cannot identify him. If he is known, the police have no need of the bloodhounds. Then what should we make of the connection between Ellis and the knife? An odorous connection exists because the hound found one. But we cannot estimate its value as evidence or bearing on the case until we establish what it is. All the other evidence is the product of your imagination and that of the general. There is, at present... No case at all against Jack Ellis. He must have been quite close to the place where the murderer happened to have that sort of connection. I would imagine a great many other people were. But did he have time to wash and change? He'd need to if he'd inflicted seven stab wounds on a man in close proximity. Ah, there's the station now. Would you like to see the scene first or the body? The body, if you please. Thank you, Sergeant. If you follow me, gentlemen, the body was found down this way. Did you find anything of interest from examining the body? I've seen Pratt's boots, but it's impossible to say what else there is until we've seen the knife, although the injuries are just as you described them. The weapon was evidently a thick-backed, single-edged knife. 
Discoloration around the wounds indicates the weapon had a definite shoulder, like that of a Norwegian knife, and was driven into the flesh with savage violence. Have you got the knife for me to look at, Inspector Fox? It's locked up in our safe at the police station, but I've sent a messenger down. We should have it soon. Ah, thank you so much. Here's where Pratt's body was found. Can't miss the bloodstained ground right there between those two trees. Uh, Jervis, how long did it take us to walk down here from the train station? Hmm. Nine minutes, exactly. Ah, and where was the knife found, Inspector? Right here. Uh, Grab that large rock and set it there, if you would. What for, if you don't mind my asking? By placing an object near each of the key locations of the scene, we can determine distance and recreate a version of what may have happened. With only locations? And footprints. Astonishing. Footprints can tell you much more than you give them credit for, Inspector. There's certainly no lack of them here. If I had known they were important, I would have... Of course they're important. Here, for example, in the soft earth bordering the sand, are the prints of a pair of smallish feet wearing pointed boots. How can you tell? We have had experience with footprints. Ah, here we have it. Pratt's footprints in the soft earth, faint and fragmentary, but unmistakable. Do you see this, Jervis? Yes. One of Pratt's footprints is treading into the print of the small, pointed foot. And there, at the edge of the gravel, is another of Pratt's nearly obliterated by the tread of a pointed foot. But what does it mean? It means, good sir, that the first print was made before Pratt's, and the second one after, leading us to infer that the owner of the pointed boot was here at the same time as Pratt. Then he must have been the murderer. Presumably. Let us see whither he went. Notice that the man stood close to the hornbeam tree and that he went towards the elm. He passes the elm, you see, and notice how the tracks form a regular series and are not mixed up in the struggle. They were probably made after the murder had been perpetrated. You'll also notice that they pass along the backs of the trees, outside the avenue, that is. What does that suggest to you? I haven't an idea. It suggests there was possibly someone in the avenue when the man was stealing off. Precisely. The body was found not more than nine minutes after Pratt arrived here. But the act of murder must have taken some time. The housekeeper thought she heard someone calling out. That's why she came out with a lantern. And you told us General O'Gorman and Mr. Hanford were coming up the drive at the same time. I would suggest the murderer sneaked along outside the trees to avoid being seen. But you're suggesting the murderer was still there when the body was found. That's exactly, Inspector Fox, what we're suggesting. Let us continue to follow the tracks. They pass the elm, then on behind the next tree. But wait! There's something odd here. Impressions in the soft earth, much deeper than any of the others. They're not part of the track since the toe is pointed toward the tree. What do you make of that? Climbing trees. What will you think of next? Though I can't see what you'll find up there. There's a water protuberance about three feet from the ground, and a crown on the trunk where the upper limbs branch off. Easy to get up into. Perfect for hiding. Have you found anything up there, Dr. Thorndike? A scrape mark in the bark. Broken twigs in the grass and... Ha! Bloody handprints. If you fall out of that tree, Thorndike, I'm not patching you up. Yes, yes, Jervis. That's not important. And look here. Another set of prints made in blood. They're on that limb. Short fellow, too, since I can't conveniently place my hands as close to the trunk and lay out flat. If you mean to say, sir, that these marks you found were made by the murderer, I say it's impossible. Why, that would mean he was here, looking down at us when we were searching for him with the hounds. The the presence of the hounds proves that this man in the tree could not have been the murderer. 
On the contrary, the presence of this man with bloody hands confirms the other evidence, which all indicates that the hounds were never on the scent of the murderer at all. It's quite a climb. Oh, God. Come now, Inspector. Here is a murdered man. This murderer has almost certainly got blood on his hands. And here is a man with a bloody hand, lurking about in a tree within a few feet of the corpse and within a few minutes of its discovery. What are the reasonable possibilities? But you're forgetting about the bloodhounds, sir. And the murderer's knife. Oh, come now, man. You're positively obsessed with those bloodhounds. Ah, but I see a sergeant coming up the drive. With the knife, I hope. Here you are, sir. Thank you, Sergeant Wilson. There's the knife, Dr. Thorndyke, just as I received it. The pocket handkerchief belongs to the sergeant here. Excellent. Definitely a Norwegian one. Nasty looking at that. At what time did you pick up this knife, Sergeant? About 7.15. Directly after the hounds had started. I was careful to pick it up by the ring, and I wrapped it in my handkerchief at once. Hmm. 7.15, less than half an hour after the murder. That is very singular. How so? Uh, Jervis, take a look. Not a drop of blood on the handkerchief, which proves the blood of the knife was completely dry when it was picked up. But things dry slowly, if they dry at all, in the saturated air of an autumn evening. You mean there's another knife? Of course there is. A knife can't be covered in dried blood when it was used mere minutes before. Uh, by the way, Sergeant, what do you scent your handkerchief with? Scent, sir? Me scent my handkerchief? No, sir. Uh, certainly not. Never used scent in my life, sir. Smell it, Sergeant. It certainly does seem to smell of a scent, but it... Must be the night. That is unmistakably the sickly sweet odor of musk. The question is, was it the knife that scented the handkerchief, or the handkerchief that scented the knife? Well, you heard what Wilson said. There was no scent on the handkerchief when the knife was wrapped into it. This scent seems to me to offer a very curious suggestion. And what might that be? Well, consider the facts of the case. The distinct trail leading straight to Ellis, who was found without a scratch or drop of blood on his person... The other inconsistencies that I pointed out on the train, and now this knife, apparently dropped with dried blood on it and scented with musk. That suggests to me a carefully planned, coolly premeditated crime. Precisely. The murderer knew about the general's bloodhounds and made use of them as a blind. He planted this knife to furnish a scent. No doubt some other object, also scented with musk, was drawn over the ground to give the trail. What sort of object? A boot, a cane, the end of a scarf, anything. But if the murderer handled the knife... Wouldn't it have gotten the scent on him, too? Since we're assuming the man is not a fool, we'll also assume that he did not handle the scent directly. He would have left it here in readiness, hidden someplace where he could knock it down, say, with a stick, without even touching it. Perhaps in this very tree, sir? Not that one. He would hardly have hidden in the tree where the knife had been for fear of the hound scenting it. No, the most likely hiding place for the knife is the tree nearest the spot where the knife was found. We marked the spot with a stone, and... It seems to be directly in line with that hornbeam tree. Ah, that flat crown would be very convenient, easily reached by even a short man, as he appears to be. Perhaps you'll give me a buck up, Sergeant, since we haven't any ladder? Why not? Find anything up there? Yes, uh, take this, will you, Jervis? Do you have it? Yes. What have you got? It appears to be a pair of iron crucible tongs. That's an odd thing to find up. Ah, ah, the tongs were used to handle a musk-scented knife. Precisely. And this artist's tin brush case was likely used to carry it in. 
If that's so, the inside of the case ought to smell of musk. No doubt. But before we open it, there is a rather important matter to be attended to. Will you give me the Vitagen powder, Jervis? Right. What have you got there? Supplies for our investigation. Odd-looking supplies. What is the yellow powder for? Yes, on Dyke. Uh, thank you, Jervis. For fingerprints, Inspector. Whoa, look at that! A fingerprint. Clear as day. I can even see the ridge pattern. Those will be his right hand. And there's the left prints. Jervis, put some gloves on and open this case. Looks like the joint has been smeared with Vaseline? No doubt to produce an airtight seal. Unmistakable musky odor. The remainder of the inquiry will be best conducted at the police station. I'd also like to photograph those fingerprints. The shortest way will be across the meadows, the way the hounds went. I still can't see where our man Ellis comes into this job if the fellow had a grudge against Pratt. They weren't chums. I think I do. You say that both Ellis and Pratt were prison officers at Portland at the same time. Yes. Now, doesn't it seem likely that this is the work of some old convict who had been identified and perhaps blackmailed by Pratt? And possibly by Ellis, too? There's a thought. And that is where the value of the fingerprints come in. If he is an old lag, his prints will be on file with Scotland Yard. Here's the purse Ellis found on the road, and all the items he had on his person when we arrested him last night. Pigskin purse, very clear smell of musk. Especially in the small compartment at the back. It's probably tainted the rest of the items. Although my sense of smell isn't keen enough to detect any scent on the others. Shall I get Ellis for you? Please do. Back in a minute. Here, Jervis, what do you think? They all seem odorless to me, while the purse smells quite distinctly like musk. You must be Jack Ellis. Here's Dr. Thorndyke come down from London to help us out. A few questions for you. I don't know nothing whatever about this affair, sir. I swear to God I don't. I never supposed you did, lad, but there are one or two things I want you to tell me. Yes, sir. That pigskin purse, where'd you find it? On the Thorpe Road, sir. It was laying in the middle of the footpath. Had anyone else passed that spot lately? Did you meet or pass anyone? Yes, sir. I met a laborer about a minute before I saw the purse. I can't imagine why he didn't see it. (laughs) Probably because it wasn't there. What? Is there a hedge there? Uh, Yes, sir. A hedge on a low bank. (laughs) Ha-ha. Now tell me, is there anyone here whom you knew when you and Pratt worked together at Portland Prison? Any old leg, to put it bluntly, whom you and Pratt have been putting the screws on, perhaps? No, sir. I swear there isn't. Uh, But I can't answer for Pratt. He had a rare memory for faces. I see. Were there any escapes from Portland Prison in your time? Only one. A man named Francis Dobbs. He made off to the sea in a sudden fog, and he was supposed to be drowned. His clothes washed up in the riverbank, but not his body. At any rate, he was never heard of again. Thank you, Ellis. Uh, Do you mind my taking your fingerprints? Certainly not. Uh, What will you do with it? We'll take them back to London with us tonight and hand them over to Scotland Yard. Uh, Here, give me your right hand. The Yard will have photographs on file with the fingerprints. If it's this Dobbs fellow, no doubt they will have a lot more information on him than anyone here. Now, Fox, he'd have to wash his hands before appearing in public. Search the banks of every pond, ditch, and stream in the neighborhood. 
You're looking for footprints like those in the avenue. Uh, now you're left-hand, Ellis. Uh, and Fox, if you find any matching footprints, uh, search the bottom of the water thoroughly. For the knife, yes. Anything else? Well, now that I'm done with Ellis, let's see that paintbrush case. All right. Ellis, back to your cell. I'd like to stay, sir, if I may. We don't mind. Well, I suppose it doesn't matter now if you do. The camera is on the desk behind you, Thorndyke. I've got the first plate set up and ready to use. Good. Thank you, Jervis. And you thought you wouldn't be useful here. <laughs> Another plate? Yes. Then I think we'll be done here, Inspector. Ah, Inspector Fox. Come in. Come in. Good to see you again, gentlemen. I was in London tying up that Pratt case with Scotland Yard, and I thought I'd drop by. <laughs> How's our friend Ellis? Well, back home with his family and happy to be out of a cell. You positively identified the fellow then? Francis Dobbs, escaped felon, living in Baseford for the past two years as a private gentleman by the name of Rufus Pembry. Photographs and fingerprints were conclusive. Ah, you've arrested him then? Can't. He vanished the day of the murder, and the day after, all his property had been converted into bearer securities. Since those don't need identification to hold or cash, we've lost him for good. I can't imagine that's a bad thing. What do you mean by that? You're glad he got away? <laughs> what was he in Portland prison for? Nothing violent, if that's what you mean. It's clearly a case of blackmail. The whole case was terribly clever. Think about it for a moment. Ellis could never have been convicted for the murder of Pratt, and Dobbs must have known it. But he would have been committed to the Azizi's court system and sat in prison for three months until the circuit judges arrived to review the case. All the clues would have been gone by then. Precisely. It takes a lot of courage to stand up to a blackmailer, and he showed ingenuity and resource in his execution of the murder. You're not saying you think it was a good thing he killed Pratt? Murder is never a good thing. Given other circumstances, Dobbs may have made an excellent investigator. And don't forget, Fox, he knocked the bottom out of that great bloodhound superstition. The Mysteries of Dr. John Thorndike. Written by R. Austin Freeman. Adapted for radio by Heather Elliott. Starring Dave Johnson as Dr. John Thorndike. Roy Nessel as Dr. Christopher Jervis. Also in the cast were Alex Gardapi as Inspector Fox. Daryl Moffat as General O'Gorman. Evan Ricci as Jack Ellis. Betsy Charnas as Mrs. Bell. Jim Galan as Sergeant Wilson. Bob Helling as Mr. Hanford. I'm your announcer, Ryan Barker. Sound design and dialogue editing, Jay Charles. Recording engineer, Jim Galan. Recording technician, Bobby Wiley. Directed by Steve Chambers. Produced by Joseph C. McGuire. Recorded in partnership at KSVR Studios in Mount Vernon, Washington. This was a Radio Theater Project presentation.